Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, we're talking about revenge. First though, some quick business we need to take care of. Vox Tablet has been nominated for a Webby Award for Best Podcast. The Webbies, in case you're not familiar, were created to honor excellence on the internet, and they include a people's voice category. Now that's where you come in. We would love to have your vote. All you have to do is go to webbyawards.com and follow the simple instructions. Can you do that for us? Thanks. Now, back to the matter at hand. The Old Testament calls for an eye for an eye, but these days we pride ourselves on being above revenge. In his new book, Payback, Thane Rosenbaum argues that we need to get back in touch with our innate desire for vengeance. Rosenbaum is a professor at Fordham Law School in New York City, and he's also a novelist and essayist. He joined Tablet Magazine's news and politics editor, Barry Weiss. Thane Rosenbaum, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for inviting me. Two weeks after the attacks of September 11th, President Bush addressed the FBI. And he said, ours is a nation that does not seek revenge, but we do seek justice. You give many examples like this in your book, Payback, where people, including the victims of crimes, make this distinction between justice and revenge. And you argue that we Westerners tend to have this repression problem when it comes to revenge. We bury it or we deny it when it rears its head. Why do you think we take such pains to avoid saying what we really want, which in many cases is vengeance? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a cultural embarrassment. Uh, people believe that revenge is a byproduct of a primitive past, that it deals with an era of barbarism before civilization took control of man and women. Um, what they don't understand is that revenge is biologically necessary. It's healthy. It's part of who we are. It's imprinted in our DNA and in our brains. Um, and it's it's a, a moral and emotional necessity. But uh, centuries of governments and religions telling us to surrender our revenge in favor of the rule of law have made us believe that the avengers are always lawless, they're vigilantes, they're unhinged, they're crazy, they take things too seriously, they're not let they won't let go of their anger. And so we've been taught to think in terms of the vengeful people as slightly psychotic. And mm-hmm. no one wants to be thought of as psychotic and primitive. And they want to be thought of as enlightened. And to be enlightened is to believe in courtrooms and to settle your disputes with, with, without passion and just a very objective uh, resolution of a dispute. So where in the culture do you see evidence of this repression other than semantically? There's lots of examples of people saying, I'm not seeking revenge, I'm seeking justice. But where else do you see that playing itself out? Well, movies is a really good example where if you ask people whether they're vengeful, they will immediately deny it. Right? They will say, I'm, I'm above such things. I'm really only interested making sure this doesn't happen to somebody else. They'll say things like uh, living a good life is the best revenge. You know, These are the terms of art that people use. But when they go to movies and they watch revenge films, and revenge films are not only often critically acclaimed, but they're immensely popular – uh, no one ever walks out of a revenge film feeling that this is outrageous, this is barbaric, this is self-help and, and, and uh, vigilante behavior. People are actually digging into their seats saying, I can't leave until a wrong gets righted. And they feel very passionately, very emotionally about this. There's a sense of moral revulsion when there's a thought that somebody's going to get away with murder or get away without being properly punished. 
So there, there are many examples. That's why people default to this justice model. But make no mistake, when they say they want justice done, they want to be avenged. They mean the same thing. We've been trained to identify one as permissible and the other to be embarrassing. To what extent do you think Christianity and this ethos of turning the other cheek is to blame? Huge. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount very famously says, you know, we are to turn the other cheek. And if you're Christian, look, I'm, I'm a Jew, so far be it from me to tell Christians what to do in this case. But, you know, it's, it's, all, it's enormously interesting because governments and religions picked up on this idea that forgiveness and mercy is the higher virtue. I mean, if you can do this, this is great, but this is really an impossible thing to do. I mean, if you want to be a good Christian and pull this off, but it really is very much acting against nature. It's acting against brain waves and neuroscience. Uh, it shouldn't be found as obligatory. This is something that is discretionary if you want to seek salvation. And what I find most troubling is where people speak of this is what Jesus would do. But people are very casual in telling us what Jesus would do. But, you know, although he sacrificed himself for all of us, you know, we don't know what Jesus would have done in the aftermath of the Holocaust. We don't really know what Jesus would do if his wife was raped and murdered. The reality is we are wired for fairness and justice, and nobody really wants to see those people who have committed wrongs go unpunished. So pivoting a little, what do you think that Judaism and Jewish law has to say about this issue of revenge? It's very clear um, that Judaism, look, if you go back to the, you know, from the book of Genesis, there are many things. I mean, the fa very fact that there were cities of refuge in the Bible, very important. What does that mean? It essentially means that if you've committed a crime, you're going to be punished. If you've committed an act where you didn't intend to commit murder, we're going to give you refuge if, in fact, you're not guilty of an actual crime. But the implication of it is if you are – We're going to chase you down. We're going to chase you down and you will not be permitted into the city of refuge. We will be exacting punishment. And it does send a message early on which is very different from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is to say um, – you know, you, 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 sh you should be ready. You should prepare yourself. That and, of course, the eye for an eye. You know, this is something people take very casually as, yes, this is old world biblical justice and that it's barbaric and primitive. But it's really not. It's like math. It's, it's really the work of a CPA. You know, then eye, eye for an eye is just about exactness and proportion. People think it means bloodthirstiness. It has nothing to do with blood. It has to mean that when you take a life, you have to surrender a life. When you take an eye, you have to give up an eye. And that's really the lesson in the Bible, that it's the eye for the eye for is appropriate, but excess, disproportion is not appropriate. And that's all that it means. But to me, the question arises immediately of who's the mathematician? Who is deciding what is proportional and what is not proportional? This is what everyone says is the biggest rap against revenge. How do you know when to stop, right? An eye for an eye seems mathematically precise. But what happens, say, and I wrote an essay about this with respect to Israel's incursions into Gaza. Everyone is always upset about the disproportionate amount of life. It doesn't look like an eye for an eye. Everyone is always focused on how many more Palestinians are killed. Now, I admit that when it comes to geopolitics, it's much tougher to get eye for an eye justice. But I can tell you that throughout history, yes, there are, are nations that are involved in honor killings and they never, you know, the recycling of vengeance and it never ends. And yes, that's a concern. Hence, the Hatfield and McCoys, right? The American version of the vengeance that just never stopped. But 
throughout the natural history of human beings, tribes, individuals, people got it right. And you know why they got it right? Because they didn't want retaliatory vengeance. They wanted to live their lives. There was really a rational reason to say, I can't take too much. Well, let's think of a contemporary example. One, one that comes immediately to mind for me is parts of Afghanistan. I mean, yes. I could think of tons of places in the world. But let's go to Afghanistan and parts of that country that are controlled by the Taliban, where if a woman is accused of adultery, right. she is subject to death by stoning. Right. Torturous, horrible death. But see, and they would say, and maybe even using some of your argument, it's completely part of our biological necessity to carry this out. And in fact, we think it's entirely just. Well, that, that's the, there, there's a standard for justice. I mean, first of all, the, the interesting thing about the Taliban is that they're actually invoking their own law. The things that we see as crimes in the Arab Muslim world against women in particular and homosexuals, the dismemberments, the maiming, the lashings, all of that is done under color of law. I mean, they're actually pointing to actual law that gives them the right to do this. Which is even more disturbing. Which is even more disturbing. But one of the things I point out in the book is, so then we shouldn't feel so confident that as long as it's done under a court of law, that that's okay, that we just don't want individuals taking justice into their own hands. Because I can point to countries around the world that I would say, hey, <laughs> that's not done by individuals. That's court ordered. That's court sanctioned. Court's telling you that that's what you're entitled to. Look, revenge is not just if it's disproportionate. So just because I get to call it revenge doesn't mean it is revenge. These people who are taking, you know, dismembering women you know, beheading adulterous wives, that's unlawful revenge. And that actually doesn't create closure. That doesn't even scores. That doesn't give people a sense of social peace. And that's one of the reasons we look upon those societies and think they're barbaric, not because they're vengeful, because it's just simply morally despicable. So then can you tell me a little bit about what moved you to write this book and perhaps why you're so fixated on the idea of revenge? I'm fixated on the idea of justice. See, I don't make any distinctions. I think that justice and revenge are identical. And I think that we have lost sight of something that sustained our peoples, all peoples, for centuries, for millennia, which is the idea that people can't go resume their lives unless justice is done, unless those people who are punished are punished commensurate with their moral blameworthiness. There should be no discounts. And since 96% of all cases are plea bargained and similar numbers are all subject to civil settlements, people don't walk away with a sense of justice. Are there legal systems in other cultures or countries that you think do a better job that we should emulate? Well, we're terrible. We're the worst. European systems are much better. We're very focused on the rights of the accused. This is considered a virtue. All the constitutional amendments are always invoked to protect the accused. But, you know, our system is so fixated on the rights of the accused that we provide no rights for the victims. And we provide no rights for the public to say, we need to know that a Someone like O.J. Simpson can go to jail and be punished for what he'd done. We need to know that someone like Casey Anthony can be punished. We need to feel that when someone is killed, that there is some sense of closure. Am I right that in Iran, victims can actually be a part of the judicial process and deciding what the punishment is? Yeah, well, look, you know, I'm not, I'm not in any way promoting Iran as a model of human rights, but in some ways their legal system is something you can emulate. I know that sounds crazy to most people, but – and they're not the only country in the world, but they're really one of the best examples. In Iran, the, the, the victim gets a seat at the table with the judge. He or she is sitting there the whole time. They're not sitting in the back of the room. You know, in America, victims are sit, sit in the back room and don't cry because that will be prejudicial to the jury. 
They literally tell victims, go in the back and don't show any emotion because we can't – it would be very unfair to the defendant because the jury will assume if you're crying, he must be guilty. Now, this is the way we treat victims. This is one of the reasons why rape victims don't come forward. Who wants to participate? In, in America, the case is always called State versus Jones, People versus Jones, Rhode Island versus Jones. Uh, it's never Rhode Island and the victim versus Jones, right? And this is a very profound difference. In other countries, uh, victims play a role. Before settling cases, plea bargaining cases, the victims brought in. Can you live with this? We're prepared to offer a deal. How do you feel about this? Can you tolerate this? Would you be able to go on with your life? In Iran, you know, when it comes to the punishment, the judge says to the victim, what do you think should happen? And the judge's job is to play the role that you were worried about, Barry. It's to say, look, I'm the judge and I'm going to be the backstop. And if you go too far, I'm going to stop you. My job is to see that it's measure for measure. And there's that's actually very, I think, an enlightened, very fair way to do it. There's a really interesting anecdote that I talk about in the book, a very recent case of a woman uh, who is a student at the University of Tehran who was being pursued by a male student and she, you know, she refused to go out with him. You know, he was just asking her out and he was so angry at her that he showed up to class the next day with a, uh, a, a bottle full of acid and threw it in her face and blinded and disfigured her. Of course, he was arrested. It was a criminal trial and she said to the judge, well, I think we should have uh, acid poured in his eyes and the court ruled that it should be done by a doctor, right? They took it very seriously true eye for an eye. I mean, it seems barbaric, but, you know, she's saying, look what she, he did to me. But you don't think it is barbaric? I don't think it... Well, first of all, they, in the end, they didn't have to worry about it. She recanted. And but, said, for, but let's say she didn't. No, I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective of the victim. You know, look, Immanuel Kant, the great, you know, enlightenment philosopher of Germany, he very clearly, uh, you know, to him, it's not even up to us how to punish. The, the, the perpetrator makes that decision. It's his decision or her decision. You know, Kant would say, get off of yourself. Don't worry about, oh, I don't want to be in the position to blind someone with acid. You didn't do it. He did it. He put himself in a position where he received what's deserved. But I know for myself, you know, I'll be the first to admit it. I feel feelings of revenge all the time. Right. And I could imagine myself being in a situation like that right. and wanting to enact horrible things on, right. you know, someone if they hurt a family hurt. member or a friend of mine. And I think it's good that our legal system or in our culture guards against that. But they, but they shortchange you. They do the exact opposite, right? The idea is that you're entitled to know more than an I, but you're also entitled to know less than an I, Barry. And that's what our legal system does. We endlessly shortchange. We're always less than an I. We never have a full repayment. We never get close to repayment. I'm not troubled by the idea of evenness. This is restoring moral balance. Isn't there a danger that our emotions can get the best of us? I think that making courtrooms sanitize, sterilize places where emotion is not welcome is a tragedy. We should be saying in return for your tax dollars, come in here and start screaming. Come in here and tell us how you really feel. We're not going to call you out of order. We're not going to tell you to shut up. Pour out your grief. Tell us what you need. Let them feel the sense of vicarious revenge. If you come inside a courtroom, we can't let you go at an axe with somebody, but we can give you the sensation that you've simulated the experience, the emotional need to confront the people who harmed you. Remember the famous line, Mandy Patimkin's line in The Princess Bride, Juno, I've been looking my whole life, right, for the six-fingered man, you killed my father, prepared to die. 
there's there's a moral truth. You're bringing back a lot of memories for yeah, me here. You're bringing, <laughs> but it's a very powerful moment that here's a son like Hamlet, right? In art, we understand this. The child knows the duty that they cannot continue without evening this score. They owe this to the memory of their father. So you're talking a lot here about how victims crave vengeance. But my question is, after the exacting of the eye for an eye is carried out, do they actually feel an emotional, you know, unburdening? For example, in The Princess Bride, after he kills him, he doesn't know what to do with his life. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that he regrets what he did. I mean, there's a difference. All that speaks to Barry is the idea that, and we now know through neuroscience and evolutionary psychology, that brain scans show that, that the brain lights up when, they, when the human beings in the presence of injustice and another part of the brain, the ple- rewards pleasure part of the brain, lights up when justice is done. You know what else we learned? That that same section of the brain lights up when you eat chocolate or anything sweet. And so the great artists of the world, you know, whether it's Homer or Lord Byron, that revenge is sweet. We realize revenge is sweet, that it's the same kind of sensation. But it's true that it leaves a bitter aftertaste. Right. I mean, what I remember from the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's the anticipation of the revenge, not the actual revenge doing. Well, Again, if you look at it as, as obligatory, right, it doesn't mean that you walk away, you know, in all really good revenge movies, by the way, after it happens, the revengers don't skip away. In fact, they're, sometimes they're not even around at the end. They're always alone. The standard can't be how happy are you the next day. The standard should be how miserable would your entire life be knowing that this person got away with murder. And you're right. that, that You're quite right that the science shows that it's the anticipation. It may not lead to happiness it may lead to even questions of ambivalence, right? I mean, uh, the Steven Spielberg movie uh, Munich did that, right? The Israeli assassins go off and kill Palestinians throughout Western Europe, taking vengeance and doing justice for what happened to the Israeli team in 1972. And then in the end, the main character is so torn up about it, he has to go move to Brooklyn. He, he can't, can't even go back to Israel. Either. Yeah. And, and, and again, I would say what Spielberg and Tony Kushner did in that case, they gave you the real example of what happens to Avengers. There's a real sense of damage and brokenness. It doesn't change the mission. It doesn't change the obligation that it's still due. It's still owed. You know, these, these Israeli assassins argued and bickered at dinner at the end of each one of their hits and then go up the next day and do it again. I want to step back a second and maybe think about crimes that are so enormous. I mean, it, where an eye for an eye isn't relevant. Something right. like, you know, the Holocaust, genociding yes. Cambodia. Yes. And one thing that struck me when reading the book was I wondered what you would, what you made of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Was mm. that an improper kind of meeting out of justice? Because the victims certainly got their emotional say. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a brilliant point, actually. The key to that is, yes, you have the opportunity to emotionally speak to your loss, and that's profound. And that's the main theme of vengeance, that you get to personalize the loss, you get to articulate your particular loss, and to what the remedy you would need. The problem with the TRCs is that you gave amnesty, and that the people who committed these heinous crimes in these nations, particularly South Africa, by sheer virtue of telling the truth, they bought their freedom. And so on the one hand, these things work because it gives – it really puts the victim in center stage with the nation watching, television cameras rolling and it does provide the kind of s- victim central focus 
that I think is necessary and a a uh, revenge-based justice system. The problem is it results in not punishing. And so in South Africa, what you found is people who said it was very re-traumatizing to tell the story, but I feel great that everyone knows what happened. And then I'm I'm grateful that the person who committed the crimes acknowledged what he did. And there's a historical record for history to know what happened to my family. But the next day when I went to CVS, he was buying toothpaste. And I can't live with that. And but do you think South Africa would be better off if those people were horrifically punished? I think that, look, we did this with the Nazis. You know, the South African model was a very different model. One of the things we did with the Nazis that nobody wants to admit is we we pursued them, prosecuted them pursuant to the Nuremberg trials, but much of the, what we did was unconstitutional under our own system. So we, it was in many ways a show trial. You know, people forget, you know, if you look at the Nuremberg trial, we would never have been able to do any of that stuff here. Can you spell that out a little bit? Before Nuremberg, following orders was a legitimate defense. The idea was always that we hold the people who are ultimately responsible for making the decisions. Uh, we prosecuted Nazis uh, according to what was called organizational membership. Uh, if you had a Nazi ID card, you were in for Nuremberg purposes. We don't do that in the United States. We can't prosecute the Klan just because they have a hood. The First Amendment allows you freedom of association, not in Nuremberg. In Nuremberg, we didn't say being a member of the Nazi party was lawful. If there's no evidence of any actual crime, you should be acquitted. But Germany was so incredibly bureaucratized, we knew that if we did that, we wouldn't punish anybody. By the way, in the camps, it was the, you know, the, the Nazis didn't do most of the dirty work. They gave it to other people, including Jews. So if you're going to look at it that way, what was the overt act? It's going to have a lot of people who claim that they have no blood on their hands. So there were many things that we did. The ex post facto clause of the United States Constitution, there was no crime against humanity during the Holocaust. We made that up. So we punished Nazis for committing crimes against humanity for a crime that didn't exist when they did it. And under our own constitutional, I think it's Article 1, Section 9, you're not allowed to do that. So again, you know, people make a big deal out of, oh, well, this is a trial versus you know, uh, vigilante justice. Let me tell you something, Barry. Winston Churchill and Henry Morgenthau, who was the Secretary of Treasury in the Roosevelt administration, were against Nuremberg. You know what they thought justice was? Summary executions. So yes, you know, if you look at the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the fact that people didn't go punished has driven the nation crazy. And this is the dark secret of South Africa is that if you ask people, they say, it's good that we reconciled. It's good that we're able to move forward, but we can't live with the fact that my son's soccer coach or rugby coach is a mass murderer. And I can't, every time I look at him, it makes me sick. And that is morally revolting. Thane Rosenbaum, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Barry. Very much enjoyed it. Thane Rosenbaum's new book is Payback, The Case for Revenge. It's out now from University of Chicago Press. If you liked our conversation today, let your friends know about it. Share the link to the podcast and tell them they can get Vox Tablet every week. All you need to do is look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast browser to be sure to get every episode. Our podcast today was produced by Marit Har. Vox Tablet's executive producer is Julie Subrin. I'm Barry Weiss. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll listen again next week.